Ask not what your summer coffee routine can do for Grady's, but what Grady's can do for your summer coffee routine. Okay, well, they're definitely Australian. <laughs> I can't do it. Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> you sound like you're a Kiwi from <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> I'm trying to think of people I know from those regions. <laughs> I can't do it. I was practicing it, but I literally can't do a New England accent without sounding like Crocodile Dundee or a Charles Dickens villain. Ask not. Ask <laughs> not. not what, you, what, what your country can do for you. Now oh, that is JFK. But what you can do for your country. I really uh, like this answer. <laughs> the cold brew that is the best in the entire nation of this United States is made by a man named Brady, a.k.a. Grayson Laird, located in the Bronx, New York. <laughs> this is he taking my a, breath he away. He runs a family business that is at the heartbeat of everything that our country stands for, a small business churning out a great product with a lot of heart and i feel like i'm slipping here <laughs> mr uh, president thank you <laughs> i feel like i'm watching the inaugural address go to gradyscoldbrew.com get 20 percent off anything on the site the code late era 20 that's late era 20 these little town Hey everybody, welcome to Late Era, the podcast by Osiris Media, where we investigate the strange, overlooked, untoward late career work by some of the classic artists of the pop and rock canon. Uh, We are extremely excited about today's episode in which we are going to be talking about Frank Sinatra's Trilogy. This is this insanely ambitious three-disc concept album he released in 1980 that was meant to encapsulate the entirety of his career. There's a disc each for the past, the present, and the future. Uh, On the past, he's singing Sinatra standard-type material. The present, he's singing like Billy Joel songs, George Harrison songs. And the future is this uh, truly remarkable sort of miniature opera that gets into science fiction, autobiography, kind of acceptance of death. Uh, Some of the craziest uh, music I've ever heard. And also some of the most moving music I've heard in, in a while. I was very moved by this record. My name is Andy Cush. I am a contributing editor at Pitchfork and the bassist in the band Garcia Peoples. My name is Winston Cook-Wilson. I uh, make music in the band Office Culture and as Winston CW. I'm Sam Sadomsky, a staff writer at Pitchfork, and I make music as BCI. And today we have such an exciting guest. Uh, He's someone who, to me, is just a rare example of how to navigate the entertainment industry with integrity. Um, You might know him as America's Funny Man, Neil Hamburger, or from his portrayal of the character Greg Turkington alongside Tim Heidecker in On Cinema, just one of the funniest and most ambitious comedy series ever. Yes. Um, He's star of the beautiful Rick Alverson film Entertainment. He played a pivotal role in the film Ant-Man, 
Before that, he was co-founder of the punk-turned-easy-listening zine Breakfast Without Meat. He's founder of the label Amarillo Records, member of the band Zip Code Rapists. He's a drag city recording artist, a film buff, a record collector, a vegan. We got Greg Turkington here. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. <laughs> My God. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, that, that's very nice to hear these kind words from you. Thank you. Well, we're really stoked to have you on for this specifically. Well, you know, it's not, not every day that anyone asks my opinion about really any Sinatra records, but uh, especially this one. <laughs> given given your uh, the course of, of your zine moving towards talking about a lot of sort of crooner and easy listening music, uh, a lot of which we love and, and uh, stuff that I've gotten really into, and the, the catalog of Frank Sinatra Jr., obviously which entertainment turned me on to. There couldn't be a more perfect pairing of guest and subject, we thought, than this, trying to make sense of what is going on with this, with this record. <laughs> cool. The idea of the podcast generally is we talk about these sort of strange late career items from artists we love, and I kind of feel like that's a theme you've addressed in your art for a long time. Like Even early Neil Hamburger, I feel like the idea is kind of used this washed up past his prime like artists trying to figure out what he does but kind of serving the audience like these old references and stuff was that always kind of like an interest of yours or something you were interested in in art yeah it, it, it always has been I don't know if it's because I had so little money when I was a kid that when I was interested in an artist I ended up not being able to buy their their hit album but being able to buy the one that was in the, the cutout bin you know <laughs> I mean, I remember, uh, you know, I, I really got into the Bee Gees in, in 1977 when Saturday Night Fever came out and and uh, I got that record, but then I wanted to hear more. And, uh, you know, all, all I could afford was like Mr. Natural, To Whom It May Concern, you know, these <laughs> records in that, that really wonderful world of, of cutout bins, you know. And so, you know, especially if, if you're a kid, you're like, well, pre-internet, especially... If you get a record, you're going to listen to it a hundred times to really try to understand what's going on there and to try to enjoy it if it doesn't strike you initially. And with a group like the Bee Gees, where they changed their sound so dramatically, you know, it's kind of a shock. I think I think the first dollar bin records I got of theirs were Trafalgar and Mr. Natural, and they're just very different than Saturday Night Fever. But I listened to those records, you know, hundreds of times and, and really absorbed them. And I think... Uh, I think that kind of maybe started me on the on this road of this sort of thing, culminating in uh, really this strange game that I play on the road a lot with whoever is unlucky enough to be stuck in the car with me. Um, we we call it album autopsy, and what we do is find a record store with a big dollar bin of of CDs, and then you try to find. I mean, we're talking late late era records by known artists, but um, records that just failed completely have they they can't have any hits on them and uh the best thing is if there's huge personnel changes so for instance uh -huh. i think there's a there's a foreigner album where the singer left and it's from like 1992 or something and so with album autopsy what we do is we'll get the cd we'll put it in the car play it once and and usually your first reaction is god that is horrible horrible uh -huh. and it just you know the, them pandering to these current trends in recording and and drum sound and everything else and it just doesn't sound like the group that you know they've sort of 
ignored their trademark found to try to get somewhere currently. And then as soon as it's done, we start it right up again and start it up right up again. And, you know, you do this like seven times in a row until your, your body temperature has changed. You know, you're actually feeling sick and awful from hearing this just hellish, hellish music. I know there's like a Jefferson Starship record we did this with. Um, there's a Huey Lewis in the News. Oh, God. Uh, actually, mm. the, the, the last, the Go-Go's album, Talk Show, was especially oppressive. I love the Go-Go's and they don't have a very long career, but that record is just a real, real bummer, you know? <laughs> but so anyway, we play these records over and over again over the course of a long drive, a few days, until this weird Stockholm Syndrome thing kicks in. And suddenly you understand the intention of what they were trying to do and suddenly you start sympathizing with the choices they make. And before you know it, you're putting it back on voluntarily <laughs> and you're like wanting to hear certain songs again. And, and you've converted yourself to something that there should be no reason to. And then you realize like, maybe these records are good. People just have to have a little more patience with them. I don't know. You know, it's it's almost like you have to like get into the person's mindset and be willing to go that extra route. I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying it's an interesting exercise and it seems to tie into uh, probably what you guys are doing with some of the records you're discussing. Oh, yeah. Uh, 100%. You're really familiar. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're like way ahead of us. I mean, we, we do another podcast, uh, by the way, which called uh, well. Welcome to Chicago. That was our first project, which is just going through the entire, you know, 40 plus discography of the band Chicago album by album. Oh, wow. So talk wow. about oppressive, dreadful music. I don't know if you've come across any of those <laughs> in the dollar bin, but talk about changes in sound. Of course I have. Yeah. Hot streets. Hot streets. Uh, Hot yeah. streets. That, that yeah. cover just still, it's, it's, it's insane. You just Haunting. can't even imagine that photo session, what the, yeah. what the mood was, how the, those guys got those goony expressions on their es face. Especially yeah. when you consider that it was their first album after the extremely tragic death of their founding guitarist, their comeback. And, and really the, the, the soul of the group, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah, they look so happy. And why are they yeah, calling it too Hot happy. Streets? What, a, what misery. Isn't the first song on that like some sort of positive, like we're back, things are rolling yeah, again, alive again, alive again? Alive again. So, yeah. so morbid, yeah. Terry's yeah. still dead, but we're alive. Again. Yeah. yeah, it's funny to hear you say this because it's also like I feel like it's a sort of a feeling you've communicated through your own releases. Like, yeah, totally. I almost feel like every Neil Hamburger album feels like you're listening to the wrong one. Like, it's like the. It's like the audience isn't into it. You, like you sound increasingly haggard and like un, like I don't know. I mean, there's. Well, some I think like, this is a great compliment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do like the. Um, you know, I do like the the moods that some of these things have, even when they're not great records. If they have a specific and unique mood, that's kind of exciting. And I like to have a specific and unique mood for each record, and not to not to sort of let people in on what we're doing, just to present it this way. And maybe you'll tap into it. Maybe you won't, you know, which uh, is kind of the kind of the vibe of uh, the third disc in the trilogy album. Yeah. Well, we could, we can dive in. Are there any, any updates from uh, the boys here, Sam? Well, just to follow up from, from last week, I talked a little bit about my adventures on the Robin Hood app. Yes. Um, it's still going well, still raking in a decent purse. Um, Good for you. Thanks. Um, and this week's uh, financial advice, I just want to say, is to diversify your interests um, as much as 
uh, finance kind of sucks you in. There's got to be more to your life than it. Um, which is why I'm happy to be back talking about music with you guys. That's like a, that's like an anti-stock tip. You're supposed to be giving us actual stock. To give us a one actual concrete stock tip. That's it for this week. Maybe we got to start slow and then okay. we'll get well, to we it. We only got like 10 episodes in the season, so you should hurry up and get to the meat of it. I got to say I've gotten into this stock stuff too myself just because oh, yeah. – well, the, the baseball season was so ruined, and usually I'll play fantasy baseball, and this is sort of like the same thing. You know, you do lots of research, and then it, it, and then hopefully you make some right choices, um, you know, as long as you keep it at kind of a low level so that you're not jumping out of the, the window. Um, but it's certainly nothing I ever thought I would be interested in, but being locked at home with, uh, you know, <laughs> with limited options of entertainment somehow um, and limited options of income uh, oh, somehow – you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe I can see if, if, you know, if I would have ever been able to succeed as a stockbroker, had I gone into that when I was 21, <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, making stupid records. <laughs> Are you using Robinhood, like that app? I'm using uh, Fidelity. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is maybe, it's less controversial. <laughs> anyway. Uh-huh. Greg, is there any, anything, uh, that you're up to these days other than uh, stocks that you, you want to tell the listeners about, tell us about? I'm into these uh, these lathe cut records. I think this is an mm. exciting thing. I'm kind of glad that they didn't exist when I had my label because so many of those ideas for records that I had were such crackpot ideas that I probably would have said, all right, well, we'll do 15 of these and that will be enough. But, you know, in the 1990s, it was like, no, the minimum order is 1,000. And right. so you're kind of forced to take these these you know crackpot concepts and 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 really put them out there and make the investment in it. But with a lathe cut, you can you can literally just be goofing around with anything and put out these tiny editions, and yeah. everyone's completely satisfied with it. They understand the spirit in which you're doing it, you know. So I'm working on um, pre-recording and pre-writing. Um, a, a big series of these things to sell at Neil Hamburger's shows should the possibility occur that I can do shows again. Um, with the idea being that, like, wouldn't it be interesting if you had a record that was only available at that show and you'd go on a tour and you'd have, like, yeah, I've got 20 copies of a different record for each night. And, and you know, they're going to go fast. And it's, it's probably maddening to collectors, but... Uh, I don't know. And they're, and they're like regional specific, the records. So, that sounds um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's kind of fun. It's like something to do that's sort of putting, um, putting some creativity in the bank so that when the tour starts up, I'm like, look what I've got ready to go, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've been working on that. I love that. Wow. Andy? Uh, one update I f- forgot to mention last week real quick is uh, – there's a record, well, a cassette by this guitar player, Drew Gardner, that I played bass on that came out, um, oh, yeah. I guess, a couple That's weeks ago. Awesome. That, That's uh, so good. Thank you. It's a, like a, just a little record of improvisational guitar music, and we recorded it uh, cool. a couple, I guess it was probably, it was before COVID, so at least a year ago, but it's finally coming out. All of us got food poisoning while we were recording it, so that was like a really Jesus. intense energy. Uh, but I, the music, maybe you don't hear the fact that we were all vomiting and stuff. It's pretty mellow. Uh, 
peaceful music and you can check it out it came out by it came out via this little label called Eiderdown Records out of Seattle and it's on their bandcamp so if anybody wants to listen to me playing bass you can hear it there hell yeah well, I will check it out cool thank you my update is that I just came out of the studio recording a new record this past weekend laying down the basics for a new the third Office Culture record, uh, which has sort of been writing and demoing and working on throughout COVID. So it was kind of a big thing for me to finally do it. And I kind of had like an emotional moment before going in where I was like, well, this is actually it. I'm actually doing this. I can't kind of poke away at this anymore and sort of dream about uh, what it could be. But I was actually reflecting that at one point I had laid out the tracks for it in a trajectory that was sort of like a Sinatra-ish concept album where there was kind of a like an implied character almost that mm. was going through an emotional trajectory of sorts across the songs. And then I decided that was a absolutely awful idea and melodramatic so canned it but Sinatra, there was a, p- a period when the band and i were uh, talking about some uh, of the classic ballad albums no one cares september of my years Sep- september of my years yeah the other one is uh where are you that's the one i, can, I like that i can never remember the title of that's like, i love that song too yeah where amazing song um yeah i guess that's a good segue into uh talking about Mr. Sinatra. Greg, I'd like to know from you, you know, how, like how you got into Sinatra or, what, or sort of what you remember your like sort of earliest memories of, of him being. And Sam was, was showing us uh, from your zine a bit in there from the 90s about MacArthur Park. So I know you must have gone through some kind of transformation to get all the way to listening to the Sinatra version of MacArthur Park. Um, <laughs> So yeah, just curious if you could lay that out for us a little. Well, you know, yeah, I, 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 I think when I was a kid, I was into different things, and then got into to the world of punk rock, which was very exciting in the early '80s. You know, 1982 or whatever when I was into it. Um, but it, it quickly became uninteresting, and for some reason, some of these these easy listening records, especially Richard Harris, Tom Jones. Mm. Um, that I was picking up in the dollar bins because I've always been a dollar bin guy. I was getting the same sort of excitement and thrill and, and feeling of, of anarchy and craziness and, and all that from those records, you know. And I kind of just switched my, my musical allegiance to that type of record and really started digging super deep. And the album of Tramp Shining, the Richard yeah. Harris record, is you know still to me like... I think when you first hear it, it sounds like the lyrics are crazy, but they're really not. They're actually very um, straight ahead, weirdly enough. To me, MacArthur Park is a very straight ahead account of something, and there's nothing there's nothing really weird about it at all. Um, and I was really super into the, the, the Richard Harris records that Jimmy Webb did. Mm-hmm. We ended up interviewing Jimmy Webb for uh, Breakfast Without Meat, my zine. Yeah. But at some point, I stumbled upon Watertown um, by yes. Frank Sinatra, Yes. And I sort of could tell from looking at it, oh, this is like an attempt to have a Jimmy Webb sort of tramp shining type of moment. And I picked it up and I played it and I said, this isn't this isn't good. This isn't anywhere as good as a tramp shining. Uh, and then I played it again and it didn't take long. And suddenly I realized, like, Jesus Christ, this, this may be the best record I've ever heard in my life. And I just, I went completely bonkers for that. And... Um, 
followed it up getting Cycles by Frank Sinatra, which is, you know, a 1967-1968 album, The World We Knew. All these kind of reprise records from that general area, area era, I really liked. And, um, and then I got into the super, super early, like, um, Columbia records when Sinatra had kind of a sweet, yeah. higher register voice. And, you know, songs like, uh, You'll Know When It Happens and, uh, some of these like super, super early, I mean, they're kind of like issued almost on bootlegs, these budget labels with really crude drawings of him, sometimes drawings from now. But the record is from, you know, 1942 or whatever. And uh, so I really got into that era and basically just started working my way through the entire catalog. Um, and I, it's strange because I think the ones that I like the most, when I read these Sinatra books, are often the, the, the albums that the Sinatra freaks like the least. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But, uh, you know, um, She Shot Me Down, which came right after Trilogy. Uh-huh. I think that's like my second favorite. It's, it's, it's very close to Watertown in my book. And um, All Alone, which is another Gordon Jenkins record, and uh, September of My Years. Like, I especially like the, the Sinatra-Gordon Jenkins collaborations. There's just this kind of morbid somber, just sad, deep, deep quality to those records that I really like. Whereas like the Nelson Riddle stuff that people love so much, it's, you know, it's kind of more audience friendly, I think. And I, I do love a lot of those records, but to me, the, the Gordon Jenkins stuff is, is the real thing. You know, that's the stuff I like the most aside from Watertown, which is the Four Seasons guys. And it's, it's kind of in its own category. Yeah. Anyway, and I, and I saw Frank Sinatra live a couple of times as well. Uh, during the height of my uh, mania for this stuff, which was just oh, wow. great. That's amazing. When, like, what era was that? This was, like, uh, probably, I saw him probably in 1989 and 19, uh, 1990, 1991. It was, like, two years in a row. He'd come and play this place, the uh, Circle Star Theater, which was in the Bay Area, and it was just the, the greatest venue ever because the stage was... Uh, it was a circular stage, and then the seating was all like a donut, basically. Everyone was surrounding the stage, and the stage revolved during the course of the show. And this, the rows weren't that deep, so every seat was a good seat for a while. And then you're looking at the singer's back, you know? And uh, But I saw a lot of great... I mean, I saw Sinatra there twice. I saw um, George Jones. I saw Tom Jones. I saw um, Pia Zadora, which was just a, a freak show, sort of. <laughs> performance i saw richard Pryor there which was really interesting he was in a wheelchair it was sort of wow. his attempt at a comeback and he did a few shows and that was one of them um just a great great theater that they uh, tore down to put in uh you know a, a high rise or something industrial park i'm gonna try to g- take us quickly through the the history of sinatra of crash course so this portion of the program is uh who is frank sinatra um so we know the name, the full name from the, the album, of course. Francis Albert Sinatra, born in 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey, um, kind of uh, came to fame in the 30s sort of by seeing Bing Crosby sing, who is sort of like kind of, kind of like the template for the modern star singer of a certain sort like the 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 singer that got top billing over the band you know who at that time was able to sort of parlay that career into being you know a film star and has like 
one of the best-selling records of all time, maybe the best-selling record of all time with White Christmas up there. But yeah, Sinatra kind of short story started singing with band leaders, Harry James and Tommy Dorsey became this kind of, I guess, I don't know, teen idol of sorts or like there was Sinatra mania in the, the vein of like a Beatle mania type thing. He signed to Columbia in, in uh, the early 40s as well as doing records of all different kinds. He did was starting to do films, musicals, sort of some stuff that was like not really hitting and then sort of learned to dance and was doing stuff with Gene Kelly. Then he sort of had a decline in prospects and then kind of we entered the novelty record era in the 50s with Mitch Miller and he started singing like the kind of goofy pop records that Mitch Miller made famous in the 50s so I guess his version of Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene was probably his biggest record that time stop me Greg if there's anything you want to add because I don't know this early stuff very well I like this I like it basically the summary there is that Sinatra was not really taken very seriously he was kind of like hated by uh a lot of men, you know, he, he didn't go to war, for instance. This was a big thing, and uh, people thought of him sort of as, like, the the handsome guy that their wives were, you know, obsessing over when they were at war. You know, he, he was not, he was not the, like, Mr. Cool uh, guy smoking under the, the street lamp that you see on those 50s records. But he kind of underwent this change. He was in From Here to Eternity, which, you know, is kind of this iconic war movie where he uh, won an Oscar. I think that happened right before he was signed to Capitol. He, hadn't, he didn't have any real commercial prospects as a musician, but then they decided to uh, give him a chance. And like he basically was one of the artists that sort of helped revolutionize this kind of adult LP market when the LP was mostly being used for like classical music, mood music, other kind of weird experiments, certain kinds of jazz increasingly. And he started creating with Nelson Riddle, who was his first arranger there, these kind of albums that were sort of around a loose concept. And he was sort of creatively actually a big part of those. The first one I think was songs for swinging lovers and that was he kind of had this idea of how the cover should look and that and the themes that he wanted the songs to be around um and so kind of a lot like he was just one of the artists that that made the lp like kind of a viable format for a pop singer pop musician in the 50s this became kind of a thing these these you know because not to not compete with the singles market so um, those are the albums that I, in the wee small hours, only the lonely, things like that. From Riddle, then he started working with Gordon Jenkins, who kind of leaned even more into like sort of a dramatic, sentimental arrangements that sort of interacted more with the text of the songs, the story, or the images in the song. There's no sun up in the sky, then the 60s happened, Sinatra starts his own label, Reprise. Um, he gets more and more, you know, be, to be centered around this Rat Pack Vegas image. He's had this these kind of public scandals for being a womanizer, this fallout with Ava Gardner interacting with, like, an increasing bad boy image, starts producing films, hangs out with the Kennedys. Sinatra had these mob connections, which helped JFK get elected. Is that controversial to say, or is that, like, fact? I feel like that's sort of just fact. 
Okay. Uh, deemed as as fact. Greg, maybe you could because this this is about Frank Sinatra Jr., who Greg I know is is a big fan of Frank Sinatra's son, who is also a singer. Most people just know him for being kidnapped around this time, <laughs> possibly by the mob. But I don't really know the full story. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> he he was the kid. You know, he was nineteen years old. He was out singing performing at places, uh, Disneyland. And he was at a booking at, uh, Harris casino in Lake Tahoe. And he was going around with a Tommy Dorsey band. What was left of, of that, uh, you know, some of the people that had worked with his father, uh, were still going around doing this type of music. And that's what he was into. And, um, he got kidnapped, kidnapped from the hotel room, uh, by these, these weirdos essentially. And, uh, you know, his dad was willing to pay the ransom and uh, Frank Jr. was, you know, in the trunk of a car for a day and then was taken to this house in, in uh, Woodland Hills, I think, and uh, eventually released uh, on, on an overpass of the 405 freeway um, when the ransom was paid. We eventually caught these guys and um, there was a trial. And the, the kidnappers, one of their lawyers, who was a known sleazy sort of lawyer, suggested to them, well, maybe a good defense would be that he paid you to uh, kidnap him as a publicity stunt. So they threw that out there in court and it got in the media and stuff. It wasn't true and it didn't fly. Um, but, you know, the media kind of reported on it. And so it became this this kind of running gag, like, oh, this guy's so terrible. He has to, you know, pay to get kidnapped and this kind of thing. None of which was true, but really kind of wrecked I think his career really wow. early on, you know, right. and um, like I say, even the kidnapper said, no, that wasn't true. That was just something our lawyer cooked up, but it did a lot of damage and it's bad enough being, being kidnapped, but then to have sort of your integrity questioned after that, you know, I've still talked to people now who still think that was what happened. And it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't what happened. And the, the funny thing is that um, I uh, actually, had the opportunity to talk with um, with Dean Torrance from Jan and Dean for a couple of hours. And uh, he had given the seed money for that Sinatra Jr. kidnapping to these idiots that he went to high school with who told them they were trying to start this business and they had this scheme. And they told Dean, like, well, you know, um, maybe what would be good is if we kidnap Frank Jr., We'll release him, but I think that if his father pays the money, what we'll do is we'll use it to start our business. Then we'll repay him with interest in a, in a year or whatever, and it will help bring the Sinatra family closer together because they'll be so upset that this happened oh to, to their son. So they had this ridiculous scheme, and Dean was like, yeah, whatever. He didn't really believe that these guys were doing this. He just thought they were telling a tall story. So he actually gave them the seed money to, to get, you know, the safe house and the car and all this sort of stuff. And he ended up in court as well talking about this. Um, he probably should have been in jail and he, and he knows it. Wow. But yeah, you know, and then from then, you know, he sort of had this, there was just this cloud, this dark cloud over his career that was very hard for him to shake. And then you throw in the fact that Frank Jr. really hated uh, rock music, really hated what was going on at that time. And so he would kind of um, almost shoot, shoot his, 
himself, shoot himself in the foot by bad-mouthing all this stuff in interviews and things. And the labels at that time, you know, they they didn't really see a market in a guy who was a young person who was championing this old music and who would just shit-talk the Beatles and, mm-hmm. and this type of thing, you know, talk about these people all being, you know, untalented and on drugs and this kind of thing. So that, that didn't really help either, you know. Right. Um, and so, you know, he had a, he did, I think he made some really, really brilliant records and we used one of them in, in uh, our movie entertainment, but, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was a tough career. It was always a tough career. And I think it, it really started off tough because of that kidnapping. Right. I mean, that's, oh, I, I did not know any of that. That's kind of like a on, cin- on cinema crime plot line almost. <laughs> it, it's yeah it's pretty out there isn't it well i mean the 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 getting back into the sinatra history the rock and roll uh you know the the despondence about rock and roll is kind of is central to the the storyline with reprise and and the 60s and 70s for sinatra because initially when he started the label he didn't want to sign any rock acts and he he had to kind of ease into doing music from the time and some of it was just really flopped and he would he occasionally you know have these moments in the 60s a very good year September of my years being a, a peak and then 69 he had the uh, my way there was sort of this up and down popularity but then his like act, his nadir commercially was Watertown which came in 1970 which was this concept album uh like folk rock and that came also after this weird record uh he did of rod McEwen's songs and poetry tonight makes me nervous not for any reason these were just like the worst selling things of his career so that kind of left him in this free fall in the 70s i don't know the 70s stuff super well but uh I do know that he was, uh, you know, buddying around with Nixon and that he did a disco cover of Night and Day, which is the last thing he released before Trilogy, which comes in 1980. And I love that disco version of Night and Day. I think it's so good. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I use use it like I use, there's a a second song too, I use them as like intro music a lot at my shows. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, But yeah, I I know know people are not always fans of it, I, I understand. I, I feel like as someone who's like pretty naive about about Frank Sinatra in general, it's funny to encounter writing about stuff like that. That's like just talks about it like it's the most like dismal music anyone has ever made in history. And then listening to it and be like, this is cool. I don't know like what you're talking about. Yeah. This sounds yeah, I know. great it's, it's to not me. Like the, like the Rolling Stones and Kiss and all these people were making disco records too. So yeah, yeah. What, what's, what's the big, what's the problem? Right. You know? Totally. Basically how we get to Trilogy in 1980 is sort of this project that kind of materializes as a concept over a few years of doing this three-disc album, uh, all featuring different arrangers that Sinatra has worked with over his career to kind of create, um, I guess, Sonny Burke, who, I forget what his exact title is, but... Uh, I think he's the producer. Produ- producer the producer, yeah. yeah. He describes it as a, a kind of a recapitulation of Sinatra's career. I, I know that the past and present came sort of before, but there was always this idea with Gordon Jenkins 
dating back from long before to do this sort of, I guess he called it a legitimate work for orchestra that would capture Sinatra's entire life and times in music. And uh, Sinatra called it an operetta. And the full title of it is <laughs> The Future, Reflections on the Future in Three Tenses, or A Musical Fantasy in Three Tenses for Frank Sinatra, Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, and Mixed Chorus. So that is the third disc, Future. Yeah, so this was a project it took that the, between the three albums took a, a few years to, to do. The, f- the future is wild, but there's weird stuff on past and present and uh, some interesting backstory there. It, I'll just say, like, it feels like a sort of ideal album for us to be doing in that, like, we, we've done all these different late career albums before, but I don't think we've ever done one that so is, it's like an album about being an artist at the end of his career. Right. It's the, 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 the subject matter of the record is like the subject matter of our show. Right. And to me, it's done <laughs> as opposed to like that Van Morrison thing we were clowning in the last episode. Yeah. It's done in like a really tender or like an attempt at doing it in a really tender, dignified way, which also yeah. is where some of the humor comes from later in the album. But it like I feel like the idea is to present this cumulative portrait of Frank Sinatra and there's that line near the end of it quite a different song must be sung when the singer is no longer young and i feel like it's this self-aware late career statement that i don't know if there was really a precedent for that in 1980 it's definitely the earliest late era album we've covered it's it's also interesting in that the album itself has these contrasts which kind of represent to me the contrast of Sinatra's commercially in that the theme from New York, New York became like a new standard to the point that it feels crazy that it didn't really surface until the late seventies and, and like feels like it's been around longer, you know, that's like a Mandela effect thing for me. Like, I can't believe yeah. that's from 1977. Yeah. It's insane. And the fact that it's like nestled in this album and like, you know, it scans Culturally, as just like one of the great Sinatra songs from history. Right. I love the uh, idea that this album isn't like those bargain bin weird things that you were talking about, Greg. Like a lot of people probably bought this to hear the theme from New York, New York, and oh, then yeah, were yeah. confronted with this insane operetta. Yeah, it was like. Well, it a, almost looks like it almost looks like a greatest hits album or something. It, it, right. it kind of feels like this this is the album for everyone you know everyone that's interested yeah, past present um, and future but then it's actually completely bizarre <laughs> yeah it's hard to know where to begin let's work up to the the third disc because you know it's like where the world splits open when you hear that for the first time as much as being about the future it it also seems to be about the past to me like stylistically yeah but i know in a way all three albums could be the past totally, 100% <laughs> yeah um, or the future. <laughs> exactly. Let's start with the past, which is essentially sort of a, a standard standards collection from Sinatra, like going over some of his old tunes with one of his old collaborators, Billy May. Well, I can just say, having seen seen the live show a couple times, um, that that record, the past, really it, it really is like a souvenir to me of what that live show was like, of what his voice was like at that time, and then just having this big band and having this this energy and, and just this feeling of like 
you're in the hands of a true professional. This guy is the best. He's going to come out. It doesn't even matter what songs he chooses to sing tonight. You're just kind of spellbound by that voice, you know, right. the voice, as they say, and being in the room with him and the way that he sounds on that record, like the, the Billy May arrangements, they're just super classy, super expensive. I mean, the, the previous record that he did back in 74, uh, Some Nice Things I've Missed, it's it's really one of the weakest that he did. And you do kind of feel like th that he's losing steam a little bit, like poor song selections, you know, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, things that aren't really the best choice. And it just it kind of feels like this sort of uh, the, the energy is is fading. He's getting old. You forgive him. There's still some good moments on the record. But this comes in, that, that record, the past, it just feels like total authority, you know? Like yeah. he is, he's seriously back. He's not fucking around. It gave me the exact same feeling I got from the live show, which is not always easy to do with a record. Do you have a favorite track on there? Um, I, I like the song is you, which starts it all out, you know? Yeah. Um, I like more than you know. He really, his he really kind of like worked up to recording this stuff. Like you can, you can tell that he really was trying to get his voice back where it where it was. You know, I think there were periodically in his career these moments when he was trying to kind of get back his voice because he had a lot of vocal problems throughout his career. Yeah, it's big. It's a big voice yeah. on, on this record in particular, and I also find it interesting because the record is is the past that like uh some of these songs are super super old right i think uh i, I was looking up uh, uh more than you know because i didn't really know the song it's from 1929 mm -hmm. and wow. i feel like even though this is the past these are pretty contemporary versions you wouldn't have guessed that that song's from 1929 you know right. i was reading a bit about it in order to encapsulate the past he originally wanted nelson riddle to arrange it who many people would view as his most canonical collaborate you know in the wider view of sinatra's career but um nelson was pissed at him for not showing up to some kind of event paying tribute to him and also really hated the idea of being representative of the past <laughs> like he didn't <laughs> want to be thought of as a has-been so he hated the concept and didn't do it so uh yeah, second fiddle was Billy May. Um, well, there's something sort of like dignified about even Sinatra's willingness to present it as the past. I feel like even just that sort of framing of this record is poignant to me. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I was going to say you probably read this too somewhere, but I don't know the details, but I think that – I. I think I read that the past that they'd actually recorded it twice, like they recorded it once and Sinatra didn't think it was too good. So they went into another recording studio months later and, and did it all again. Oh, wow. I, I don't think I, I didn't know that. that. I mean, he, he spent a, put a lot into this record, this, this triple disc thing. I mean, it was, was he always like that in the studio as like a perfectionist? From everything I've read, yes. I mean, he usually liked to work with the with the live band and sing the vocals live. I know Watertown is one of the only cases where he was overdubbing vocals onto pre-recorded uh, music, you know. Yeah. And he even for that, he was present at the tracking sessions with the band in New York and then went back to L.A. and did the vocals. The thing that's so crazy about those 50s records is that he's literally standing in the middle of full orchestras in the room and they're like a million of the most 
beautiful sounding mics ever made, which like costs like $25,000 now. But those are just feats of like recording, you know? And uh, yeah, it's, it's really insane to read about that from a perspective of like being in modern recording sessions where there's like so much reliance on the ability to isolate tracks and, uh, and overdub. It's cool that being in a vocal booth or something from a technical perspective probably would have made the recording process like so much easier. And it, it's cool that Sinatra's like, that doesn't matter. Like what matters is the feeling of me being in the middle of this orchestra. So we're going to do it that way. Yeah. yeah and you hate to think of, you know, if he'd been around now, all the, the tweaking that these people would have done digitally to make sure that each note was right. And, you know, the way yeah. you combine one syllable from take 16 with the next syllable of the word from take 28 to make these sorts totally. of things. And you're not getting that on those Sinatra records. That's for sure. I mean, the way he leads the tempo, like, you know, you, you sense him just like locking eyes with Nelson Riddle or whoever it is and being like taking a pause to phrase that stuff in the way that makes those records so great. And you just wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to do it. And that's what they say about New York, New York was that they originally recorded this for this record, but then he was doing it in concert so much that he kind of changed the last section so that it uh -huh. slowed down for dramatic effect. And so he's like, yeah, hey, we got to redo this now because it's kind of mutated into something else, you know? Right. right. And that's uh, like the signature moment of that song. Yeah, totally. So let's get into the present. I mean, that's the, that's the big song from it. There's, there's, so, it's, it was a top 40 hit and it was like a, top 10 adult contemporary hit. It seems like it should have been more of a hit, but it just sort of, I think it's reputation snowballed over time. Well, um, also think about like the eighties and what music was popular then. Yeah. Like as much of a standard as this was, it's hard to imagine slotting it in between. I don't know the music that was like big at that time. Like the, this was like uh early, like late disco or early new wave kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, but the, the interesting thing is that it had been around because it was, the uh, the theme from the Scorsese movie, New York, New York, which is so completely like there's a cult for so many Scorsese movies. And I don't know anyone who's really riding for New York, New York, which is a sprawling yeah. like, I don't know, it's like three hours. It's like a really long musical with De Niro and Liza Minnelli and Liza Minnelli. And it's, um, it's sick, too. I mean, it's a really sick movie. You know, it's 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 kind of unpleasant and. It's kind of weird. I'm surprised that you never hear about that movie either, considering yeah. that the song went on. People don't even know that the song's from a movie. You know, they don't even know the movie. It's very the strange. Weird. I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah I've, I've either heard that, like, I don't want to fucking watch this musical. I want to watch, you know, Mean Streets or Raging, you know. It's either that or, like, people who have seen it are like, it makes me feel strange to watch. <laughs> like, it's, Whoa, I, I've never seen New York, New York, and I feel like I kind of want to watch it now. Is it like offensive? What's the as as what I remember is, and I haven't seen it for years, so I, I'm just going with the, the overall feelings I have about it, which were that the characters are both really unpleasant, and mm -hmm. the Robert De Niro is is a kind of abusive. You know what I mean? So it's it's mm -hmm. it's hard to sort of cheer for him. It's just like these kind of repellent people right. in this this romance with all these these songs i mean it, it does feel like a scorsese movie in that way you know it's not like uh i mean it's slick and that they spent a lot of money on it but it, it's got, got kind of a an ugly gritty quality to it still the people who wrote the music are candor and ebb they're like the people who wrote cabaret and uh 
wrote a lot of dark stuff, you know, so that the darkness of the, it makes sense. But um, just a weird thing because it feels so remote from all of that context now. I mean, yeah, it is just, it is really hard to believe that the song originated in the late seventies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I had to like remind myself. That's why it's on present because it was a hit or like a movie song like two years earlier. A lot of the stuff that's on present, my favorite thing about present is that it includes love me tender which it which is not, not present in 1980 well which is funny because it there's this clip i don't know if it's like is it would it be ed sullivan something like that where sinatra and elvis sing together and sinatra sings love me tender almost like mockingly and yeah so, it's a timex timex special <laughs> i think it's from like 61 or 62 or something yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So there's kind of a weird edge to it where, you know, the present to him is rock and roll, you know. So if he's going to do the present, he's got to do like something that's emblematic of rock and roll coming in and fucking up his career initially. Listening to it, I I thought about uh, that famous like late 70s video of Elvis uh, sitting down at the piano playing Unchained Melody and like... uh, which is really beautiful, but in part because of like how you can kind of see his powers like slipping away from him. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty amazing that on this, this Sinatra album is a real contrast to that. Like I kind of, I came to it expecting uh, that same sort of like unintentional pathos, right. but it's it's amazing how he's really not like, you don't get the sense that he's like lost it. Well, that's another thing where it's like Sinatra spends the whole album acting like he's on his deathbed, but he's really just like 65. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I, mean, I would have really... I would have guessed he was much older than that. Yeah. And he still had like another like 15 years of making records in him. Like this was not like the final statement he presents it as. Right. It's just no, and then, like the next record he made was like seriously one of the best records he ever made. It, it wasn't like. Uh, well, he made his final record, and he's still cranking him out. It, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like that at all. So, yeah, it, it is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah, by the end of this album, like the imagery that I'm seeing is like Sinatra, like making the bed in his coffin and sort of like getting in it and, <laughs> yeah. and closing the lid. Yeah. He's like, "Let me go back to Hoboken one more time, exploring, <laughs> exploring interplanetary concepts of the afterlife." Anyway, we'll get yeah. there. Let's let's hmm. finish up uh, present first. Right. Yeah, let's let's talk about MacArthur Park. Yes. His rendition. So for context, this is a Jimmy Webb song that Richard Harris does a really amazing version of on a Tramp Shining, and I'm sure, Greg, you have feelings about this this rendition. Well, I mean, I know that Sinatra loved Jimmy Webb. He commissioned him to write uh, material for him, and he would frequently talk about, uh, didn't we? as being you know mm-hmm. like one of the greatest songs ever written and uh he, he did uh by the time i get to phoenix he, he he was like super into jimmy webb this is strange because he's just using part of the song i mean macarthur park is a seven minute song right. so it, it's kind of a mini suite but this version is strange because it's just abbreviated to like what two and a half minutes or something just sort of the end of the song in a way I noticed that it feels to me like he's kind of abbreviating um, uh, Song Sung Blue the same way. It feels like some of these weird, these rearrangements of these songs 
uh, Song Song Blue and Just the Way You Are into this more big band style, they they feel like they're truncated as well, you know. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure what the intention is there with uh, that, you know, kind of like, yeah, we'll do these. <laughs> Here you go. This is all you need from it. It doesn't need to be so long. I'm not sure. I don't know what, what they meant by that, but they, they do feel like that. My theory about that, which I can get into, I mean, there is, it's like a medley-ish approach. I mean, and, and I guess if you're trying to survey your entire life's work in a way, you speed up and slow down the tape or something at certain moments, <laughs> I, you know, mm-hmm. um, and there is kind of a precedent for Sinatra doing medleys like this. You know, doing medleys as a way of kind of surveying his life, which we could talk about just getting into the future a little bit. Are there any other tracks on the present we want to talk about? Uh, something, yeah. Yeah, something. Oh, we got to talk about that. Well. Attracts me like no other lover. Something but yeah. you hang around. Stick around, Jack. Jack. It might show. And you hang around, man. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know. They actually recorded this earlier, too. There's another version from early 70s. And it's totally different arrangement. And uh, it's kind of more uh, more lively. It's um, And it... I don't know. This version kind of has that... that uh, well, Don Costa, Gordon Jenkins, kind of morbid quality to it. The way it's it's so slowed down and so heavy with strings that it becomes this kind of somber sort of thing. But you listen to the earlier version he did of something, and it's it's pretty lively. So when he does the you know you stick around Jack and all that kind of stuff, it makes more sense than it does with this version. Yeah. Even though this does this does speed up a bit, but um, don't want to leave enough. Better believe and how. It is a Nelson Riddle arrangement. It's the one exception to the rule. So for what it's worth, that may be why it feels a bit different than everything else. I wonder when he he did that, since they were sort of on bad terms. (laughs) I'm not sure how that leaked on there. It's um it's definitely the funniest moment on that (laughs) on the the first two discs. And I, and, you know, Sinatra would like talk about that song a lot too, you know, and, and again, one of these, like, this is the greatest love song ever written and this kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Um, he seems to have said that about a lot of songs, that it's such and such was yeah. the greatest love song ever written. And they all are. So, I mean, he was right. <laughs> uh, should we move into the future? Here we go. The future. Reflections on the future in three tenses. Recorded during two days in December of 1979 at the Los Angeles Shrine Auditorium. An orchestra of more than 140 people, chorus of 50, all live. Couldn't fit in any studio, which is why they had to do it at the Shrine Auditorium. Uh, And the whole thing is written and arranged and conducted by Gordon Jenkins. I feel like just for the listener's sake, if they haven't heard this record before, it's worth sort of attempting to try to explain what the future is doing, which is that it's like this suite of songs that are connected. They have lyrics that and images that kind of recur across the songs. There's kind of spoken passages, both by Sinatra and by little sort of like 
sound effect voices that come in in which like he is really in literal terms like singing about himself and his own life he starts by introducing himself by name he he addresses the future the concept of the future from all these different angles first in terms of space travel then in terms of what is the future that i'm leaving for my children where he starts talking about like nuclear war uh, and then in my favorite section he's kind of looking at a young couple who are wondering about their future and he's kind of understanding like i'm already living in the future uh, as far as these people are concerned uh, and then eventually i think is like looking towards the future for himself which as we alluded to earlier at least the way he's presenting it on this record is death and the whole thing becomes this sort of like uh preparation for death uh even when he's talking when even when he's doing this kind of joyous thing about space travel at the beginning uh at one point uh he's talking about after going to uranus which he pronounces as uranus Mm -hmm. that he'll be going to heaven and someone says a backing vocalist says how will you know francis if it's really heaven and he says how will i know I'll know if they meet me at the station with a cheese and tomato pizza, well done, and a little red wine, which is so lovely to me. Needless to say, the concept uh, doesn't always connect in a totally sensical way. Yeah, especially when he's just like listing off the different planets and stuff. That's where it gets to be the most uh, shaky to me. It's as if he thinks of his life as the solar system and he visits different areas to yeah access different parts of himself like visually looking at the track list it looks like like a yes album it's <laughs> like six songs they're all super long and they have names like world war none yeah there's a lot of like parentheses and yeah. colons in the song titles <laughs> mm-hmm. it is definitely shocking just aesthetically to me um, I like how there is the future followed by a track called the future continued followed by a track called the future conclusion, which you would think is maybe the end of the album. But then there's another song after that. That's 10 minutes long called finale <laughs> before the music ends. Or he just wants to shoot craps one last time. Yeah. And he's like thanking Beethoven and stuff. Yes. Uh, which sort of reminded me of uh, murder most foul. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. There's there's a lot to dig into here. It's like it's like dizzying. Um, Greg, tell us about your feelings about this album. <laughs> your experience well, with it. I'll say this much. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think it's it's a record that you don't play as background music. That if totally. you're going to listen to it, you got to sit there and pay attention and really get absorbed in what's going on because it doesn't have a lot of, you know, ripe melodies. It's it kind of meanders and it's 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 strange. I mean, it does feel like one piece. I know Gordon Jenkins had done that um, The Letter, the Judy Garland record, and there's another one, the Manhattan Tower. He, yeah. He'd written a couple of these these kind of big concept albums in the past that were very successful and i also know that gordon jenkins was in was in poor health and kind of at the end of the line and so a lot of this uh, morbidity in these lyrics and things is probably stuff that he was thinking about as well um and you know he'd written this and then uh, gave sinatra a demo and sinatra 
said, yeah, let's do it. You know, he, he kind of had a, um, it's kind of bold to, rolling the dice on some of these types of records, like that Rod McEwen one that you mentioned and, uh, and Watertown, you know, maybe because of having success with his concept albums in the fifties, he was always willing to, to give a new version a shot, but, uh, of anything in his catalog, this is by far just the most challenging, bizarre, experimental, uh, you know, and not, I would not say to somebody that is listening that doesn't have any familiarity with Frank Sinatra, I would not recommend you start with this record because it may just, it may just put you off, you know? When I heard it the first time a few years ago, my first thought, and I like, I'm like a 20th century classical fan. And I just thought of like Charles Ives. I thought of like this weird American pastiche art song thing. And that's, but, um, I'd be curious to hear what that Gordon Jenkins demo sounded like. Because I know the the music is really powerful to me, but in part because it's Frank Sinatra singing it. And because this huge ensemble is playing it, like they're really getting across these huge emotions very convincingly. Like I would love to hear what this music sounds like played at like, you know, a dinky little piano or whatever. I think uh, he did it on like a Casio or like some sort of um, cheap synthesizer. That would be amazing. What I read. Yeah. That would be really out. Yeah, you know, maybe I think I'd even like that more. One hundred disc box, you know, and that'll be in there. <laughs> yeah. I will, I'll say, like Greg, you brought up the the Gordon Jenkins's history and 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 his early successes. And so when I said earlier, like the future to me seems so much to be about the past. Partially, it's because he came out of this background of like radio. He was a staff conductor for. Uh, NBC in the in the early 40s and then this Manhattan Tower kind of song cycle he wrote that was first recorded was like an early long play, like long playing record thing even pre-LP uh, like multiple 78s and then he re-recorded it in the 50s in a longer version this was some of the first like but the first thing was in like 1945 so this was this whole experimentation with concept albums before the idea existed when they were kind of like interacting with the radio play idea so there's like a real weirdness to a lot of those too and they're like using sound effects and spoken stuff so i feel like gordon jenkins's legacy is based on these all-encompassing operatic it's like uh, Wagner. Right. What's the Gesamtkunstwerk? <laughs> the Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like just, <laughs> they're, they're called like these auto light operas that he would do for radio. And there were all these terms that were thrown around for using them before concept album was kind of arrived on, you know, and then he started doing the stuff with Sinatra after that in the fifties. But I mean, I think the real like seed here is September of my years because that was collaboration they did in 65, which has a very good year, which was a big hit and such a signature song and kind for of him. a prototype for this, I think. It was a yeah, very good year. looking back on life. Right. Because, I mean, it's it's not like as catchy as some of these songs. It's kind of telling this story yeah. in order, in chronological order. Yeah. And, it, it's, and, you know, I could see Sinatra having a lot of trust in, in Gordon Jenkins based on that working. That's kind of an unlikely hit really yeah i feel like there's all there's also even some like direct callbacks to that song Mm -hmm. in the lyrics to the future like i could be wrong here but i feel like there's a moment where he says like 
I've had some very good years, you know, right. something that's <laughs> very yeah, self-referential. Yeah. yeah. And it's self-mythologizing. It coincided with his 50th birthday. It's meant to be a, a concept album about middle age. There was this TV special. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Greg, called like a man in his music where they use the song and they would in, like this medley idea. They'd interpolate bits of his old hits into the song to like create this mm. little like TV play of his career. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So this that's that's always been a part of their kind of relationship, and they both kind of love doing stuff like that, Sinatra and Jenkins. So Sinatra was just psyched about doing this fucking crazy record. It like sort of tied into other stuff that he had done. And there's a lot of Jenkins haters too, you know, like amongst the Sinatra freaks. There's a lot of people that just really poo-poo the the Jenkins records. Yeah. They think they're too sentimental and too many strings because there are like super, super string heavy, you know, yeah. which I I really like about them. But um uh, I think I think uh, All Alone is another oh, Jenkins record that predates September of My Years I'm that if you haven't heard so that it's 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 worth listening to. It's um a lot of old waltzes, but um, that are unrelated songs. But somehow together on this album, it just it, it just has that really strong feeling of uh, of loneliness. There's a there's a another record which is unrelated, but it's um, it's worth listening to if you guys are into these types of things. It's a Dinah Shore record called Songs for Sometime Losers, and I think that one and All Alone together is just a, a great uh, kind of bummer. You know, alone at home. If you wanna, if you wanna bring yourself down, uh, put those side by side. But yeah, I mean, uh, Gordon Jenkins. I, it's like I don't know how much upbeat material there is from the guy, but you know, the Nat King Cole records that he did have have a similar kind of quality to them. And um, I, you know, I actually have his his biography that his son wrote, but I haven't read it yet. And I'm really cur- curious what was going on with that guy that he sort of went for these sounds they almost feel like they're tapping into your subconscious or something triggering these these kind of panicky feelings of, of being alone you know and, yeah. and in the case of the future you know i swear to god there's moments on that where i, I feel like i've been jettisoned to one of these planets and, and left alone in the <laughs> total in the cold and in the dark you know what i yeah. mean there's there's this 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 mood this weird mood of just total isolation um that I think he's really good at. I don't, I don't know how he does it, but you know, you get a lot of uh, you get a lot of strings involved, and it's definitely possible. Yeah, it's it's really kind of strange to me. Like again, sort of reading the criticism of this record when it came out, because I I share that feeling. Like the first time I listened to this, like I thought it was like pretty incredibly powerful, even despite the kind of like surface level silliness of him like singing about Neptune and stuff. And, you know, there's all this writing about it that's sort of talking about it as sort of overly sentimental schlock, which I guess to me just feels like a really shallow kind of like dismissive way of interacting with music that seems like it's expressing like very powerful feelings to me. And I don't know, there seems to be like some kind of discomfort with the idea that that this guy would be choosing to express those feelings in this particular way mm-hmm. it's too unique of a record to be schlock you know what i yeah, mean totally. that kind of over sentimental stuff i mean it's 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 very strange yeah it's so weird yeah. but i do think i do think though that you know if you were to put this on with a bunch of people you're going to get some laughs and people oh, definitely. saying oh this yeah. is ridiculous you know but 
you sit there by yourself, <laughs> tap into it. It is a very moving record. I think it is a very powerful record. And his, his voice is just, I mean, I know not many people agree with this, but I just, I think this period of his voice is my favorite. I just love, especially the record that followed this. I mean, his singing on that just, it gives me chills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go off the point about people laughing at it, I think that's something I also like about it is that it occasionally acknowledges the ridiculousness of it, which also helps it avert sentimentality is there's this yeah. idea of like him being in on the joke. Like there's totally. a line that kind of like alludes to his mob connections, which I don't know if he did very often. There's like the tomato pie joke. Like I think he wanted to make sure or Gordon Jenkins wanted to make sure that this didn't come across as like some, you know, like, schlocky sad sack kind of thing i think it's balanced enough that it makes for like you know you laugh and then you're like actually surprised when something hits you hard emotionally yeah and the funny moments are like often the same as the emotional moments like to me that pizza line (laughs) strikes me as being funny but it also is like that twist from the kind of heights of heaven to the lows of like a really good slice of pizza also sort of hit me in an emotional way as well. Mm. Yeah. What, so what are some, some moments here, some of our favorite moments? Um, I would, I would direct anyone who wanted to, who I, I, I agree with Greg, like the way to, to experience this is to just sit down and listen to the whole thing by yourself. But if you wanted a taste of it, I think the best kind of like standalone single track is World War None. Mm. It's not my favorite moment of music on there, but it's the one that kind of stands alone. It's a little more upbeat than the rest of it. It has the maybe the most memorable kind of hooky melodies to it, which is this kind of strange anti-war uh, protest song where he starts out um, dreaming about what the future for his children are, is going to be like. And then uh, the band kind of picks up and he imagines this future where there are no more wars. But it's this kind of like minor key, almost like tiki dance kind of vibe. That will help us get ready for world war none. Like, this is just great to me. I don't know. This is yeah, unironically. I was, was going to suggest this one too as, as my favorite. Yeah, it's kind of like taking like a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical thing and pushing it to like a complete avant garde level with all this psychedelic imagery and like dis- yeah. this like increased dissonance and that the weird modulations on the nun and stuff just like yeah he goes he goes up on that note in a way that's like super weird and unexpected every time he does it i was going to say too this is this is maybe weird but i live within walking distance of the um the griff griffith observatory the planetarium mm. that you might have seen in uh you know rebel without a cause and yeah, things yeah. It's, it's great los angeles landmark and I just can't help but feel that this would be best presented as a planetarium show. You know, you're sitting there in the dark and you could have these sort of projections in a, you know, listening to this in a dark room with a, a, a you know, starscape above you yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. It, it has the feel of some of these weird planetarium presentations that I've gone to that are just teaching you about the Big Bang or whatever it is. It kind of has that feeling, except yeah. it's uh, about a singer. 
Yeah, well, the the one that overtly does is like a, that tour is the first one. What time does the next miracle leave? Maybe we could. I don't know what people's favorite favorite planet is. This is my is. favorite. Yeah, this is this my is favorite track. Crucial, too. crucial to understanding the vibe of of this record. I, I feel like the concept is it's eleven minutes Sinatra's traveling around the solar system, and then it gets pretty weird from there. But I love that it gets to the, the way that he gets to the solar system is that he's like sitting in his yard on like a summer night having a drink or something, looking up at the stars, thinking like, I, I forget what the line is, but I love that it sort of starts with this like very autobiographical image of Sinatra as an older man sort of just dreaming about the stars and then goes into this like full on kind of fantasy sequence that then becomes like the bulk of the song. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just interesting, you know, yeah, you get, you get your pizza on your Uranus and then, uh, Pluto is a, Pluto is a rotten place an evil misbegotten place. It's pure hell when your journey ends there, but you can bet your ass I'll meet a lot of friends there, which is one of my, one of my favorite lines. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I also couldn't discern, like, what is the order that he's traveling the planets? Right. Right. I was thinking that, <laughs> In too. In this song, it seems totally yeah. arbitrary. Pluto, it's like, Pluto's first not Jupiter, the final then Mercury, stop. then Mars. I don't know. Like, he gets to Pluto, and then he goes to Mercury after that. Drunk and It's joy like he's ride. doing it by memory. Just like <laughs> yeah. Trying to make sure he got them all. <laughs> I get, like, caught up listening to the chorus parts, you know, and this, the parts that he's not singing. <laughs> They're great. Like yeah. I love those sort of interludes where the orchestra or the chorus sort of just like takes over for him. It's it's really sweet. Yeah, it's like giving him a break. Mm. Yeah, the future will almost certainly be whatever you want it to be. There's it's there's just you know little half insights like that, <laughs> like weird little Greek chorus moments. From what I read, Gordon Jenkins was just devastated by the poor response to this yeah and uh which is one of the reasons that the great she shot me down album came out was sinatra was trying to help out by letting him do another record that might reclaim his reputation or at least his pride a little bit you know among fans like do you know uh you, you've said that you love that record did the sinatra listening public at large also see that as a kind of redemption after this one i think People generally look at look at She Shot Me Down as like the, the, the best record of the, the tail end of his career and certainly mm-hmm. the last great record that he made. Because after that, you've got L.A. is My Lady, which is a, a little sketchy. It, it has some good moments. And then you have those duets, which, you know, I don't I don't I don't want to hear those ever again. Honestly. <laughs> I don't want to hear Jimmy Buffett and these, these kind of people oh uh, singing duets with Frank Sinatra. You know, it's it's. Not my thing. <laughs> when that shark bites with his teeth, dear. Scarlet I mean, the, the response to the record, because it was like three, these three discs was very mixed, and a lot of people had nice things to say about it, but very few people were really defending the future. The, the famous story, I guess, uh, in, at least in New York, is that the Jonathan Schwartz, who is now disgraced, uh, jazz DJ uh, for many years on New York radio who had for many years his uh, own Sinatra show 
he called it narcissistic and an embarrassment. And I think he like jokingly asked if Columbia would recall it and all this stuff. Sinatra called up the station and got him temporarily suspended, called him like a fucking prick or something. And, you know, that guy was like a Jenkins hater. Like he hates all the Jenkins records, even the hits. Right. He's kind of like the quintessential quote unquote serious Sinatra fan. I was going to tell you of of a kind of a joke that I've heard about this record. Please. From, from record record people, which is that, uh, you know, when you're looking for a used copy of this, that you don't you don't really need to check the third disc. The third disc will always be in mint condition. You need to check <laughs> the other two, see what condition those will be in. That's great. Which is sad. <laughs> Just want to take a quick break to remind you of the smooth, delightful, slightly chocolatey taste and the rejuvenating energy boost of Grady's Cold Brew, the official coffee of late era. If you don't know, Grady's is a awesome small business run out of the Bronx, New York by a man named Grady Laird. He's a great friend of the podcast. And if you go to their website, Grady'sColdBrew.com, and use the product code LATEERA20, you'll get 20% off your first purchase, and we can't recommend it any higher. It's so good. It's better than the cold brew at your local coffee shop. You can get it in bottles. You can get it in a kit where you brew it yourself at home. You can get it in a sort of Franzia boxed wine situation that lives in your fridge for a month while you get hyped every day on delicious cold brew. I just got one of those kits in the mail the other day, and it's really changed my life for the better. My partner and I were sitting in bed uh, the other morning and listing off reasons to be grateful for you know, for things that helped us through this winter and Grady's was like number three on the list. That's a true story. And uh, you're going to be saying the same thing after you order your Grady's from Grady'sColdBrew.com with the product code LATEERA20. Okay, so the last section of the show we call fantasies and delusions or fantasy or delusion i guess uh which is uh based on the billy joel album that we mentioned his classical album we just uh deem every album that we talk about either a fantasy or a delusion everyone kind of goes around and gives their closing argument for whether it's good or bad essentially if it's a record that you like and think is worth listening to it's a fantasy um and if you dislike it it's a delusion uh, does anybody want to go first? I'll say that I, I'd say a fantasy for this. I think it's a, a great record. It's not for everybody, though, but I think that the people involved, you know, Sonny Burke, the producer, and, and Frank Sinatra and the arrangers, and everybody knew what they wanted. They had a really clear-cut idea of what they were trying to do, and, and they carried it out probably even better than they expected, and it's not really their fault if some folks don't like it. I mean, obviously... For a record buying person, that I mean, for somebody that just heard New York, New York, and it was like, oh, trilogy, it looks like a greatest hits album. You know, they're not going to be happy with what they find on on that third disc. But I think for you know, uh, true fans of the Sinatra artistry, and if, if you're willing to put the effort in to really listen to it, 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 the third disc is is really fantastic. You know, I don't think there's I don't think there's any real like screw ups about this record at all, and uh, you know. If folks don't like it, I I, I understand, but it's <laughs> they need to look in the mirror. That's where the problem lies. No, it's not it's that's, not with a record. That's for fucking sure. Yeah. I was going to ask where it would rank for you among Sinatra albums. 
there's so many records, you know, it's, um, I mean, I own it. I probably own two thirds of the Sinatra albums. I play it sometimes, but yeah, I mean, I, I, the stuff I really like, I think because of Gordon Jenkins, I was always more likely to put that third disc on probably is because I'm just looking for more of that kind of magic. But, uh, you know, my favorites are, are Watertown and she shot me down and, um, all alone in September of my years, I'm I'm really into, it. and it's weird because these are all reprise recordings, and that was the last third of his career. And and I I mean I like the Capitol stuff, but I kind of go for all those things. And especially, um, I would say to to listeners that are interested, there's a CD compilation called Everything Happens to Me that Frank Sinatra himself compiled of his favorite tracks from the reprise years. And I think it's really, really good, really a powerful listen. And it's like one of these CDs that's, you know, $1.88 on Amazon or whatever. But if you just wanted to get that last third of his life and sort of and sort of see what he personally liked, I think it shows that he had pretty good taste for his own music and his own recordings. Sweet. Wow. Check that out. Definitely a fantasy for me. Um, this was a big moment for my like evolving Sinatra fandom when I when I discovered it because I'm fascinated I mean I didn't really even get into it but the, just the contrasts in uh, in Sinatra's life and work the contradictions the complexity of him as a figure versus what you know 90% of the world thinks of him as now is like the rat packy kind of ring-a-ding womanizing kind of like all-American oaf, you know, like that. There, there's so much more to the story than that down to like his shifting political affiliations, like, you know, trying to like champion awareness of racial divisions, experiment with a ton of different types of music. He conducted instrumental albums in the late 50s, you know. This was just like a far point in the constellation of Sinatra that really blew my mind and made me just get more invested in him as a figure that is despite his tremendous fame like still very misunderstood by the majority of people at least like people of our generation that i i talk to about him so it's part of my pro sinatra argument i love it i love your argument (laughs) big time fantasy for me i've been so dying to do this episode since we started this show and i'm just psyched that we can rep for this album yeah, for me, it's definitely one of like the easiest fantasy judgments I've made on this show. <laughs> I'll say I'll be open about my perspective as someone who's not a, a Sinatra fan at all. Not to say that I don't like his music. I've just never spent much time with it. Um, the only record of his that I knew well before this uh, was No One Cares, which is another Gordon Jenkins one. And I love that sort of like almost kind of oppressively sad, but also kind of heavenly dense uh, string sound, which especially on um, on the third disc of this, the Jenkins disc, you get a lot of. But more than that, the audacity of the concept is just so cool and impressive to me. And the fact that they delivered on it so thoroughly makes even the moments of like him hamming it up on their rendition of something it redeems them by sort of making them feel like they're they're kind of part of this whole universe that they're creating of 
this guy who maybe is slightly out of touch bringing slightly the wrong energy to this uh, Beatles ballad. If you kind of view it from the lens of this is a record about a man who's near the end of his life, who was once the most dominant force in American music, now kind of reckoning with the fact that he isn't that any longer. You know, the things that might scan as screw-ups become these kind of little poignant things that are heighten the power of of the meaning of the record. They heighten the meaning of the record uh, to me, uh, which is just sort of an amazing thing to pull off. And it gives it an energy that I couldn't really find another album to compare it to. So it gets my, my ringing uh, fantasy endorsement. Beautiful. It's also a fantasy for me. Um, I'm a sucker for like a big doomed venture. And so the concept itself is just appealing to me. Like, yeah, the past is standards, the present is like recent radio hits, but then why go so far into the future? <laughs> it's like, why make it this like paranoid, violent, death-obsessed, like sci-fi opera? Like, you know, he could have just done like a suite of songs about older couples and love, or like songs by up-and-coming songwriters, or like... <laughs> A message to his kids about like who their father. Yeah, but like it's so creative and psychedelic and personal to him. Um, yeah, it's like a kind of like a cliche in criticism at this point, and I, it's like meaningless. But I do think it's genuinely ahead of its time, in the sense that they're like this was kind of celebrating. I read like four decades in show business which was sort of unprecedented for someone who was still trying to make records. Like Elvis was dead. Like, you know, the Beatles were broken up. Like he was very alone in how old he must have felt at this point. And it's an anxiety on this record that I think a lot of artists would eventually have to confront and not do it as artfully as he did. And now we see it all the time. Like it doesn't even like register as like potentially self-indulgent when an artist starts reckoning with their legacy. Like you have like awful biopics that artists control, like that Elton John one. And then you have like, um, you know, like indie artists like Phil Elverum wrestling with what it means to like look back at a career. And it's kind of like what a lot of, to me, the most poignant art of like the last 10 years has come from. So yeah, to me, it's a success. And it also just holds a special place in my heart because there's like a few things that Winston you've shown to me and just I immediately was like, I'm I'm changed after hearing it. And one of them is the Van Dyke Parks album, Clang of the Yankee Reaper, like with just like this beautiful, tragic opening song and then like a ton of batshit Calypso covers. Like (laughs) when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, like I've never heard a record like this. And I felt similar with this, where it's like, yeah, LP3 is like, when you hear him sing his own name, it's like a moment. But it wouldn't hit as hard if you hadn't heard like the standards that he's like singing his heart out. And then like him singing a Billy Joel song, like it truly is such a singular thing and such a late era archetype. So definite fantasy for me. Wow. Wow. I wish everybody that bought the record felt the way that you three do (laughs) had given it this attention and picked up this much from it you know it's it's incredible that it sold well yeah yeah Yeah. the the album was nominated for a grammy but i think it it just it won like the best album notes or something (laughs) 
<laughs> it didn't win. But but it wasn't just New York, New York. The actual album could have been album of the year. And in a more just world, perhaps it would have been. I don't know what won. But Greg, is there anything before we go that you want to that you got coming up that you want to talk about or or plug? Well, I'm working on. Um Speaking of trilogy-type records, another Neil Hamburger uh, pop vocal record uh, with Eric Paparozzi, who did the last one with me. Yeah, and um, Which is great, by the way. I love that record. Oh, thank you. Actually, you know, um, Frank's um, uh, granddaughter, AJ, sings on, on that record. Oh, really? She sings on, uh, on uh, Crazy on You. She's one of our vocals. She's great. She's, I mean, that, that whole family is just, it's in the genes, but um, she's just a great, great singer herself, and somehow we got her on there, so... Um, yeah, we're doing. We're working on some new on cinema stuff. Hopefully, for uh, hopefully to come out very soon. You know, it's been hard because Adult Swim uh, kind of cut ties with us, and so we have to figure out how to do it on our own. But um, thanks to the support of the fans, um, and you know, figuring out a way to do it during COVID is also difficult. But we're going to uh, have an Oscar special this year, and then a, yes. a new season to follow. That's Amazing! Such great news. Can't wait. I, I need it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Greg. It's huge for all of us. Oh, thank thank you guys. Thank you guys for asking. It seems it seems like a, a great concept for a, a podcast. Now I got to go back and listen to these things because uh, I really do like these sorts of albums and people's <laughs> discographies. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe we can get you on the Chicago podcast at some point uh, to talk about Chicago Twenty Two or something like that. If you. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I watched that that Chicago documentary was just ghastly that, uh-huh. that yeah. was made by whoever, whichever members have the uh, the copyright on the name i'm not sure how it worked <laughs> but after i saw that which i saw on a plane i went and bought the chicago box set and just kind of started digging into it a little bit so wow. um you know i yeah. think i have only picked up one album maybe i don't remember which number it was but uh I'm kind of dipping my feet into that that pool, so uh, that's a yeah, maybe Chicago thing. 28 or something. I might have something to say about. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> All right, fellas. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks Greg. for being Thank on. Thank you so much. You bet. Next week on Late Era, we'll be talking about Lou Pearlman's Man Band, the adult boy band, uh, bringing the teen hits to the whole family. It's a blast and one of my personal favorites. Thanks to everyone for listening. Later is hosted and produced by Winston Cook Wilson, Andy Cush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJP. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Designs. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.